No baby yet. Due date is today. So we will see. I was, I was born four days late, so that's always been my prediction was October 14th. But we will see. I know Carrie is ready. And uh, again, we definitely appreciate your prayers. Um, and yeah, we're very excited. And I just appreciate everybody's support and love. Uh, we'll be in Exodus chapter 9 this morning. Um, a couple weeks ago, the bulletin said we were going to do communion today. We actually are rescheduling that. And the reason is because I want to wait until we get to Exodus chapter 12, which is the Passover, which I think is just a, I think that's a passage that is very conducive to doing communion. You can do communion with any passage in the Bible, um, but I think that's one where it's especially applicable to the passage. Um, but we'll be in Exodus chapter 9 this morning as we continue to look at the plagues of Exodus and week three of our two weeks in the plagues. Um, like most of the series I preach, I feel like I tend to go longer than how I envision it when we start. Because originally I thought we're just going to spend a couple weeks looking at these plagues. And it looks like we'll probably, probably be in the plagues until first week of November, Lord willing. But uh, great passages and excited to be in these passages and uh, certainly pray that these are a blessing. So I'll read in our text this morning. Being in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for this day and this opportunity to study in your word. Lord, may, may it not just be something that we learn, may it be something that transforms our heart and mind and soul and life. May we, Lord, know your word in our heart and follow it. Lord, may we follow it because it's true and because it's from you and because it's good. Lord, may we be changed today in the study of your word and constantly pointed to you and to your truth and to your glory and majesty. And Lord, we pray for that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart 
Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So again, continuing in Exodus this morning, and we're continuing in the ten plagues, where the Pharaoh of Egypt refuses to allow the Israelites' permission to leave Egypt as the Lord had commanded. Last week we looked at plagues two, three, and four. This week we looked at look at the next two plagues. And on a personal note, I'd like to say at the beginning, I love Exodus. I love these passages. It's my favorite book in the Old Testament. And part of the reason why I love these passages so much is because we see these pictures, and on the one hand, they're such extreme situations. But at the same time, they're still very applicable. Because while it was a long time ago, and it was a different part of the world, and a different culture, people are still people. Faith is still faith. Sin is still sin. And God is still God. And so while it can seem so far off and removed from us, one thing that we see over and over in the Exodus is that we're really not so different from people in the past. And at the outset, too, I would like to mention one commentary that I have found especially helpful in my study is uh, Philip Ryken's commentary of the book of Exodus. Ryken is the president of Wheaton College, uh, but before that he was a pastor, and it was then about 15 years ago that he wrote a book on Exodus, which, uh, again, I have found helpful in all these passages, but especially today. And so with that, we'll just jump right into the fifth plague, a plague on the livestock. Going back to our passage, looking at verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. In the preceding four plagues, we've seen times where Pharaoh has been warned. We've seen times where he has agreed to free the Israelites, only to renege. But here God again gives another warning when Moses tells Pharaoh that if he does not release the Israelites, there will be a plague upon the Egyptian livestock. Verses 2 and 3 says, If you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock. Now, the verse says that the hand of the Lord will cause a severe plague. It's noteworthy that in chapter 8, when the Lord brings a plague of gnats, that is the first of the plagues that Pharaoh's magicians are unable to recreate. And they tell Pharaoh in chapter 8, verse 19, this is the finger of God. And here, the Lord says that it will be from his hand that the plague comes. And there does seem to be an intensification of these plagues as they progress. This fifth plague is the first one that brings death. Now, there have been other plagues where death was a result. 
For instance, the first plague is turning the Nile to blood. And as a result of that, the fish in the river die. But the plague itself was turning the water into blood. Or similarly, the second plague was an infestation of frogs. That's the plague. At the end of it, ultimately, the frogs die. But this is the first of a plague where the entire purpose of the fifth plague is to bring death. And it also foreshadows the death which will happen in the last plague when God strikes dead the firstborn of all the Egyptians. The early plagues were very severe, very significant, but some of the early ones are largely just nuisances. But here, the stakes are getting upped. The ESV calls this a severe plague. Some translations use the word pestilence. The King James Version uses the word moraine, not a common word in modern English, but referring to an infectious disease. We don't know specifically what this plague, what this disease was, but it does seem to be some sort of zoonotic disease or multiple diseases which were to cause death among the Egyptian livestock. Continuing in our passage, actually looking at verse 3, it says, A very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. So this plague will have a wide-ranging impact. It will impact food supplies. It will impact the economy. I made this point last week. But one of the common things that we see in the plagues is a lot of language which mirrors creation language. Genesis talks of the Lord's orderly creation. And the plagues are an orderly uncreation. In Genesis, man is given charge over the animals. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. But here, the livestock are taken away. Something else that's noteworthy here compared to the other plagues. As I've mentioned many other times, that the plagues uh, are this direct confrontation to the Egyptian pantheon of deities. And the Egyptians believed that their creator god, Ptah, embodied a bull named Apis. And that Apis was an intermediary between humanity and the Egyptian gods. The Egyptians would actually keep a live bull at the temple in Memphis, which was worshipped. When those bulls died, they were given funerary rites similar to those that a pharaoh received. They worshipped this bull. And the fact that a bull was a significant symbol of the divine communicating with the world makes it very interesting that shortly after the Israelites are taken out of the promised land, redeemed from the promised land, when things aren't going their way in Exodus chapter 32, what do they do? They make a golden calf. There were also other Egyptian deities who could be associated with horns and other cow-like features. 
But here in this fifth plague, the livestock of Egypt are under attack. Continuing in our passage, there's a picture of Apis, by the way, or what he might have looked like. Verse 4, as we'd seen last week, in the fourth plague, the Lord says that he will spare the Israelites from the destructiveness of this plague. Verses 5 and 6 up on the screen. And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Now, something that's worth noting in this verse. The passage says in verse 2 that the plague will be upon the livestock that are in the field. Verse 6 says that when the plague happened, all the livestock of the Egyptians died. Now, does that mean that literally every single animal that belonged to any Egyptian died? I don't think the text ultimately supports that because there will be later plagues where Egyptian livestock are again referenced. So either the word all is hyperbole, meaning a lot. For my sensibilities, I'm okay with that translation. Perhaps it means that it's all the livestock that are in the fields, because those are the animals contracting diseases from one another. Or perhaps it means all kinds of livestock, but is not meant to be taken exhaustively, referring to every single animal. The ultimate point is showing us the vastness of the destruction. Verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Verse 7 is very subtle. Pharaoh sent. It's almost awkwardly worded in English. It can be easy to overlook because it's just two words. The plague has been inflicted. Egyptian livestock has died. And Pharaoh sent. What that means is that Pharaoh sent people to investigate the conditions in the Israelite territory to see how they were doing. Which is kind of ironic. Because the Hebrew word, the word sent, is used twice in this passage. At the beginning, when talking about letting the Israelites go, sending them out, is the word sent. And here in verse 7, where it talks of how Pharaoh sent people to investigate Israel. In other words, he sent his people to investigate the Israelites, but he did not send the Israelites into the wilderness as he had been commanded. So Pharaoh sends his people to scout out the Israel, Israelite territory in Goshen. And he sees that the Israelites did not suffer the same consequences that the Egyptians had. Philip Ryken has a helpful observation on this situation in Pharaoh's investigation. And what Riken gets at is this idea that there can be a time and a place for healthy skepticism and questioning. Especially for someone who's not a Christian or who does not believe in God. 
There could be a time to investigate the claims of Christianity, to look at the person of Jesus, the evidence for his historical ministry, the evidence for his resurrection, and the historicity of his resurrection, and a number of other topics in the Bible. But there also must come a time to trust and a time to believe. I had a friend in seminary. I tried to get in touch with him over the years, but been unsuccessful. I don't think he's walking with the Lord today. He was brilliant. Not to be too full of myself, but he was one of the few people that I've known who, there's certainly people who are much smarter than me, but of people who I know who I knew were much smarter than me. Brilliant. I have a degree in philosophy. He could explain these ideas, and he didn't study it. That wasn't his major in college. Just so far ahead of me. And he had a church background before seminary, but it had not been the healthiest church that he'd grown up in. And so he came to seminary with a lot of questions, and he had a lot of things he wanted to figure out. Again, there's nothing wrong with questions. But the issue is when the questions never stop. And it's like you have to have it all figured out before you can believe. You'll never get there. I was listening to a podcast this week talking about a man named Hiro Onoda. Uh, He was a Japanese soldier in World War II. He's famous because he was not relieved of his duty formally, formally until 1974, 29 years after World War II had ended. Now, I'd heard that story before and always thought that maybe he was like in the jungle and didn't know the war was over and like they just kind of stumbled upon him one day. No, the Japanese knew he was in the Philippines. They tried to tell him the war was over. He didn't believe. They sent him newspapers and books talking about how the war was over. He thought it was allied propaganda trying to dispirit him. They sent family members to him to tell him the war was over, and he still did not believe it. It wasn't until 1974 when his commanding officer got sent to the Philippines, I'm sure an old man at that point, got sent to the Philippines to formally relieve him of his duty that he finally relented. Sometimes we can have all the evidence in the world and still not want to believe. More than a century ago, the mathematician Alfred North Whitehead and philosopher and mathematician Bertrand Russell wrote a famous book called Principia Mathematica. I know it's one of all of our favorites, Principles of Mathematics. And in establishing the basic axioms and proofs for math, they famously took 379 pages to get to their definitive proof that 1 plus 1 equals 2. We cannot explain the whole world before we can live in it. And we can't know everything about God before we can believe in him. There's a time to question, but there's also a time to believe. Pharaoh continues to be given evidence, but continues to disobey. And we come to the sixth plague, boils. Similar to what we had seen in the third plague, and I know it can probably be easy to lose track, this sixth plague comes with no warning, beginning in verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. 
It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. Boils. Just a reminder of what we've seen in the plagues. Plagues of the ecosystem with the river turned to blood and frogs driven from the river. We've seen plagues which caused nuisances like gnats and flies. We've seen plagues that impact the animal kingdom, such as the death of livestock. And now we see physical suffering. It's some sort of skin disease, various conditions such as leprosy, smallpox, Skin anthrax have all been suggested as possible causes. Whatever it is, it's undoubtedly unpleasant. Moses is told to take handfuls of soot from the kilns and to throw it, throw it into the air. There's irony in that. In Exodus chapter 5, that's when Moses first goes to Pharaoh with the command to let the Israelites go into the wilderness in order to have a feast to God. Pharaoh goes out of his way to punish the Israelites and make their lives just a little bit more difficult. Exodus 5, verses 6 through 8, we see Pharaoh's response. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. So straw was used, and I believe still can be used. I don't know how much it is in modern times. But the reason why straw would be used in the brick-making process was to help give it some stability and to also help the bricks dry more quickly. And apparently, apparently the Israelite brickmakers had been given straw to aid in the process. But when Moses asked Pharaoh to allow them into the wilderness as a punishment, Pharaoh made them get their own straw, but did not reduce the quota of bricks that he demanded that they make. Now, when we come to our passage this morning in chapter 9, the residue from those bricks that the Israelites had been forced to make is taken from the kiln and thrown into the air, and the Lord uses that miraculously to bring judgment upon the Egyptians. The sixth plague afflicts both man and beast. As we've seen in other plagues, this one again takes aim at Egyptian religion. The Egyptians believed in several deities associated with healing. And yet, here the Egyptians are afflicted with boils, and the Israelites are not. Verse 11. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Once again, we see a scene that is almost comical. The magicians are the people who recreated the first two plagues. The plague of gnats, they could not duplicate. 
The last plagues they didn't even try to do. And now we're at a plague of boils, and they're in so much pain that they can't even stand up before Moses. They are totally ineffective. It's also a play on words in verse 10, which says that Moses and Aaron took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. But the magicians cannot stand before Moses. Now, that's true physically, but it's also true spiritually. They and their false gods have been totally defeated. Now, in our day and age, pluralism is the flavor of the month. We like to affirm what others believe and treat everyone's ideas like they're equally valid. But we cannot do that when it comes to faith. Yes, we must always be courteous and loving and gracious. But we cannot compromise on what we believe. We can be loving, but also we must be lovers of truth. I made this point last week, but for the various sentiments that people give about religion, people say things like, no faith is any more true than any other, or all roads lead to God, or all religions are basically teaching the same thing. All throughout Exodus, we're seeing the Lord God and the fake gods of the Egyptian pantheon, and it's again and again pointing us to the fact that the Lord is true and the Egyptian religion is false. And that's true today for any competing religion. Now, when people say things like no religion is any more true than any other, or that all religions are equally valid, that is making an absolute statement about the religions of the world. It's not open-minded. It's arrogant. If there's one thing that all religions agree upon, it's that they are not all the same as all other religions. Throughout the Exodus, the Lord is showing himself to be true. Throughout the history of his people in the Old Testament, God has shown himself to be true. Through the ministry of Christ, God has shown himself to be true and for his promises to be true. Through the resurrection of Jesus, God has shown himself to be faithful. And God has been faithful to his church for almost 2,000 years. God has been faithful to change lives. He has been faithful to bless the church and to bless ministries as the gospel has gone forth throughout the world. It says in our passage that the magicians couldn't stand. Again, I take that both literally, physically, and spiritually. Yes, they couldn't stand because of the pain of the boils, but they also couldn't stand up to the Lord. Similarly to what the psalmist says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And his leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. 
Psalm 1 contrasts the person who delights in the law of God against the person who does not. And in verse 5, it says that the wicked will not stand in judgment. And the point of that is that the wicked have nothing to stand on before a holy God. And Pharaoh's magicians cannot stand as they're afflicted by the plague because they are in sin and are opposing God. We cannot stand before a holy God. But the good news of the gospel is that we have someone who could because he was the son of God. He was righteous. He was sinless. He was holy. He was God himself. The word of God made flesh. Christ the Lord. While we are fallen, he is gracious and allows us to be forgiven and to go into the presence of the Lord. That's the good news of the gospel. That when we believe in Jesus, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the offer that he makes to us and invites us into to believe in him. That as sinful people, that he is the son of God, the eternal one, who invites us into eternal life through the death that he died on the cross for us. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your grace and for your Son. And Lord, again, there are so many reasons, so many excuses we can make to not believe, to not trust. Let us not hold on to those things, Lord. Let us surrender our lives, our wills to you, Lord. Be the Savior of our lives, but also the Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.